If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Philippians chapter 4, as we are reading Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. And we're reading through to verse 9, and so we are reading the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, and you'll find it on page 1830, page 1830. As many of you know, Philippians is one of Paul's friendly epistles. He is pastoral and warm in his tone as he's writing. He writes to encourage the folks at Philippi to rejoice in their faith with thanksgiving. And so that's where we're going in our scripture study this morning. So we're beginning Philippians chapter 4 at verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Many of us, of course, will be celebrating this coming Thursday. And the celebrations will go on in homes and places where folks gather for several days as we celebrate Thanksgiving. And of course, as we think of Thanksgiving, a lot will take place this week. 47.5 million people will travel. And if you're intending on traveling this week, you will feel as if the entire 47.5 are traveling the same day as you are. That's a lot of people moving across the nation. Children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews will be coming home for the great celebration of Thanksgiving. While they're there, 48 million turkeys will be eaten. That is a lot of turkey. Now, I know, of course, that not only will it be eaten on Thursday, but again on Friday, and by Saturday it will be sandwiches, and by Sunday it will be soup. But it's coming. 48 million turkeys will be eaten this week. 50 million will tune in Thursday to watch the Macy's Parade. And of course, many of us from childhood have very fond memories of that parade. It's an integral part of all of our Thanksgiving. And then on Friday, 92.1 million people will shop. I just don't have the courage for that. I'm so sorry, Friday, I won't be shopping. 92.1 million. That's a lot of people. And of course, those involved in retail uh, are exhausted by the end, but grateful, of course, for the business. 92.1 million. 63% of us will watch football. And that, in essence, means this. That's about 20 million viewers per game. That is significant. We are in for a busy, busy week. Thanksgiving, of course, gives to us wonderful memories, especially for our children and our grandchildren, as we've mentioned, as they will gather in your home, as we pray together and celebrate and give thanks to God, as we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Of course, 
Some of the memories will be made with our children, and I shared this with some of you last week, so let me uh, share it again this morning. And a five-year-old asks her mom, Mom, why is some of your hair white? And mom responds, well, each time you do something naughty, one of my hairs turns white. And she says, wow, mom, what did you do to grandma? Those are the kind of Thanksgiving memories that will last for years to come and will be told again and again. Thanksgiving is, of course, a wonderful time of the year. And this morning, as we come to Philippians, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us and seeking to cultivate within us a heart of genuine thanksgiving and that's where we're going in our study this morning the apostle paul in writing philippians the passage we come to this morning contains some of the most memorized words in all of the new testament rejoice in the lord always again i say rejoice wonderful words that lie at the very heart of who we are. Our joy in Christ, we hope, is infectious. It is real and authentic. And this week, remember, in the midst of all of the traveling, all of the eating, all of the shopping, watching sports, to give thanks to God for his blessings upon our lives. And these words rejoice in the Lord always seem almost impossible given who was writing and where he was writing from. Paul, as most of you know, was an outstanding leader. He strode across the stage of the first century and he was, for all intents and purposes, a colossal figure. What he wrote in the first century is being read and studied by millions this morning across our world and will be read and studied by millions who will then seek to apply his words to their lives in the course of this week. His life, magnificent. His ministry, matchless. He was indeed a remarkable individual. And you may be sitting this morning and you may have had a tough week you're feeling a little grumpy this morning and you're not quite ready for church and you're not quite ready to hear rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice and you may be tempted to say Richard if the apostle Paul has had the week I have had he will not feel like rejoicing in anything it is one thing for the apostle Paul to quietly sit and write an epistle that is warm and engaging and gentle and pastoral it's accessible to everyone and if he had gone through all that I have faced this week the last thing I feel like is rejoicing but please remember, the Apostle Paul is not simply writing a warm, gentle, pastoral letter to encourage others. Paul is in a Roman prison cell, being arrested, about to go on trial for his life. 
and in some of the most difficult, stark circumstances, he is able to write, rejoice in the Lord. And I tell you again, rejoice in him always. Does that seem a bit of a disconnect? Going on trial for his life and yet he's thinking of others, strengthening and encouraging them. Going through arguably one of the most difficult episodes anyone can face. And he's able to write with heartfelt gratitude. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's quite remarkable. Now how do we enjoy the blessings of God each day? How do we enjoy the presence and the encouraging and his enabling grace when it seems that we are working longer hours, taking on more responsibility, wrestling with credit card debt, living with ever-increasing stress. And here is the Apostle Paul, rejoice in the Lord when you're under significant pressure. How is that done? How do we live out our faith in a 21st century setting where circumstances can be challenging and difficult to say the least? How do we do that? How do we rest in him and rejoice? That's where we're going this morning. And in fact, notice what else he says after verse 4, verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then he writes words that seem absolutely impossible. Do not be anxious about anything. That's quite something. (laughs) Do not be anxious about anything. You know, of course, his mind is moving forward to his trial and what he will say in defense of his faith. He could be executed. There's no obvious reason that he will be found innocent or led out early. None of that. And yet he's able to write, do not be anxious about anything. Here's my question this morning. The Apostle Paul writes these words because of where his focus lies. Now let me say that again. That's one of the principal lessons from our study this morning. Where does your focus lie? The Apostle Paul clearly is not focusing on the guard who checks in with him regularly, the shackles on his hands, the bars on the wall. That's not where his focus lies. He's not looking back and regretting his past or trying to relive where he's been. Neither is he focused on the future, but he's focused on the moment. And he's able to say, not only rejoice in the Lord, but do not be anxious about anything. Now the question is this, does Paul know something we don't know? Here is the great apostle after 30 years of ministry, has a little perspective looking back in his life, and he's able to say, do not be anxious about 
anything. Now jump down to verse 10. We didn't read this passage because I wanted to bring it in later in our study. And he writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you at last have renewed your concern for me. He's received word from the folks at Philippi telling him they're praying for him. Paul, we're there to support and encourage you. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. And he's saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need. And here is where I want you to focus for the next few minutes. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I want to highlight contentment. And that's exactly what he says. And notice what he says. I'm looking at halfway through verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, now, lean in a little. Listen to what I've got to say. He doesn't say, let me give you five principles for being content, whatever the circumstance. Let me give you some helpful guidelines. He says, I have learned the secret. And of course, we know what a secret is. We like to hear secrets. When someone has a secret, they have knowledge that we don't have. And here is the apostle almost drawing us in, inviting us and saying, I have learned the secret of deep, abiding, heartfelt contentment. This is not something he's glibly saying. This is not the kind of thing that he thinks he should be saying just because he has a pastoral concern for the folks at Philippi. But it's heartfelt, genuine, real. Paul is living in the real world. He's not some ivory tower scholar or a pastor removed from everyday circumstance or heartache or difficulty. He is right there living out his faith in the messiness of everyday circumstance and challenge. I have learned the secret of being content. What does he say? He says this. In any and every circumstance. And then he says at the end. And I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now where does that deep contentment in extreme circumstance, difficult, challenging days, where does it come from? Now hold that thought for a second. Let me come into the 21st century. In the society and culture that we live in, we are consistently reminded, each time we turn on the radio or the television, go to the movies, we will see advertisements. And those advertisements tell us multiple things. And they tell us that happiness, sense of contentment, is determined by what you 
have. Now remember that. They're telling us that happiness and contentment is determined by what you have. The car you drive, the home you live in, the clothes you wear. The more you have, the more contented you will be. That's the signal given to us multiple times each day. Multiple times. The Apostle Paul says this, genuine contentment, real happiness is not found in things, but in a person. Genuine happiness is found in Christ. Three times in chapter 1, Paul talks of joy and rejoicing. Twice in chapter 2, several times here in also in three and several times in four as well. And if I had to do a quick survey this morning of what you felt was perhaps the main theme running throughout the book of Philippians, most of us would say joy. We see it right here in chapter 4, 4, as I've mentioned. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And joy and rejoicing does run throughout the epistle. But allow me please to be a little controversial this morning. And I'm going out on a bit of a limb because I'm disagreeing with a number of New Testament scholars whom I hold in the highest regard. And here's the reason why. I'm not convinced that joy or rejoicing is the major theme of the epistle. It's one of the themes. It's not the main theme. On 40 occasions, 40 occasions in these four chapters, you read the name or the title Christ or Christ Jesus. It comes up again and again and again and again and again. It's a relationship with Christ that lies at the center of who we are. And when we develop that relationship intentionally, when we're willing to go deeper, when we're ready to submit and surrender every area of our lives, and we do so prayerfully, fully engaged with Him, it's when we go deeper and deeper in our faith, seeking to be more Christ-like, then the joy comes. Do you see my point? It's not joy for its own sake, but joy instinctively, naturally, comes out of a relationship with Him. That's why Paul wrote in chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ. Is Christ. In fact, earlier in the epistle in chapter 3, he says this, I want to know Christ in that fuller, deeper, richer way. And a blessed byproduct of a relationship with him is joy, is rejoicing. And as Paul is writing in the first century, as we live in the 21st century, we're called to do the same thing. Paul's focus was not on his circumstance, but on Christ. Our focus is not on our circumstance, but on Christ. That's where the joy comes from. 
that's where that authentic sense of deep abiding peace and contentment comes from. Now let me pause for another second and suggest this. Now you may be listening this morning saying, Richard, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. I see the point about shifting my focus from my circumstances to the love and grace of Christ and all that he has done for me. I get that. But Richard, I live in the real world. The world you talked about moments ago of credit card debt and struggling with children, paying a mortgage, taking on more responsibilities, longer hours at work. How do I, in the midst of all of that stress and strain, begin to find that deep contentment? Well, let me suggest this. When the Apostle Paul writes, and let me go back to verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And notice what comes next, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Now that's quite something. That's quite something. But here is Paul speaking from experience. And what Paul is telling us here is this. Focus on him. That's the reality of the Christian life. Now, what about all the other things that run through our mind hour after hour? The things that cause anxiety and concern and worry. How do we deal with that? Do we simply say it doesn't matter? Of course it matters. But let me suggest this. I suggested this several weeks back, and I was slightly surprised at the number of emails and notes I received afterwards. And so it seems appropriate to highlight it again this morning. And it's this. Many of you will be familiar with the old illustration when it comes to mental engagement in daily activities. And the old illustration is this. Imagine in your mind... That your mental process is a little like an air traffic controller in an airport. Think of an airport. Visualize in your mind the tower. And the air traffic controller decides which aircraft will continue circling. He gives permission for those to make their descent. He gives permission for others to taxi and take off. But none of them can move without the air traffic controller's say-so. He's in charge. So let me suggest this. To use the analogy of the air traffic controller and apply it to your thought process. Here it comes. The things that weigh in your heart and mind the things that cause you to be anxious, the things that keep you up, those things that are the last thing in your mind at night, first thing in your mind in the morning, you can either control your thought process and your emotions or your thought process and your emotions will control you. See the point? You can control them 
or they will control you. And what I mean by that? Simply this. When thoughts begin to crowd into your mind, and you begin to try and resolve issues that don't exist, when you find yourself tempted after a very difficult situation, perhaps a marriage that has gone bad, a romance that did not turn out well, the temptation is to think, it's me, I am the problem, I am unlovable, and everything I touch falls apart, and it's a disaster. Now you can continue to be there in your mind or you can say, and this, gosh, it's hard to do. This means you have to be mentally tough. And when those thoughts invade your mind, you say, I will not go back there and I will not live there. And you move on mentally. Give the thoughts that are circling permission or not. And what does Paul say? Notice verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, don't beat yourself up about the past. Don't find yourself in a pity party. Put the past behind you, close the door, turn the key, throw it away, and move on to where Christ is calling you. Allow Him to dominate your thinking. That's why Romans chapter 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put it behind you. Remember you have a gospel-shaped identity. You are His. You are loved by Him. There isn't a single moment in any minute where He loves you less than He did from eternity past. Not a single moment. You are His. You belong to Him. That's called shifting your focus. And that's why Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice because you are His. Don't be anxious. Don't be overtly worried or concerned. Minimize that entire thought process. Be aware of it. But don't live there. And then what? In everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God with thanksgiving. So as we wrap all of this up this morning, what is the best antidote to anxiety? Well, it weighs about three pounds and you can find it between your ears. Think about his love for you. Focus on his enabling grace. Give thanks to him for the things in your life that are lovely, admirable. Come from him. Focus on his love. On his grace. And do so with thanksgiving. Practice each day of getting rid of the negative thoughts, putting them away from you, and focusing on His 
blessings. And here is the challenge. And dads and granddads, I'm looking in your direction. Because on Thursday, when you gather around that Thanksgiving table, you be intentional. You reach out. Take the hands of those sitting on either side of you. You lead in prayer. Give thanks to God for every person sitting around that table. Give thanks to God for the circumstances of your life and for his amazing love, his tender grace. And do so prayerfully with thanksgiving. What is it we remember? And Where should our focus be? Quite simply this. It should be on Christ and all he has done for us and where he is taking us. And please remember, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture and for all that it teaches us this morning. Enable us, please, to leave this morning rejoicing resourced, ready to live for you this week. Father, help us to mentally practice what it means to shift our focus to you and to give thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.